Welcome to a King Size Life podcast with Shannon King. Our goal is to encourage and inspire you to get off the sidelines and live this one life He has given us in the biggest way possible. Life is guaranteed to throw us all obstacles and opportunities. Do you choose to be a spectator of life or seize the opportunities given, create your own path, and become everything you're designed to be? Your road to discovery starts now. Here's your host, Shannon King. Well, hello, Amy Wood, and welcome to A King Size Life. I'm so excited to have you here. Hi, how are you? I'm doing good. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you here. I know that we had tried to make this happen before, and before we started recording, we were actually talking about just, it's a, been a crazy season, and we both know it was a crazy year prior to 2021, and despite our best efforts, we needed to reschedule, and I believe in God's timing, so today was the day. And so for those of you out there listening to A King Size Life, my guest today is Amy Wood, and she's a marketing strategist extraordinaire, over 20 years of international experience. She's the founder and CEO of Flint Avenue Marketing. If you ask me on a day that I'm not paying attention, I might call it Lighthouse. That's an inside joke, but it's definitely (laughs) Flint Avenue Marketing. She's also extremely involved in the community. Amy is the vice president of Oilfield Connections International, founder of Lady Leaders of Lubbock, board member for Texas Women in Business, and on and on and on. I could make a huge list, which you can catch up at akingsizelife.com on her long list of things that she does within her profession and for our community. And I absolutely love what she does in her marketing business. We've had an opportunity to partner on some things. And so I know firsthand how incredibly talented she is. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but you guys know listening that I like to talk more about who my guests are, what has formed them into who they are, some of the adversity that they've faced and how they've overcome those things to live a king size life. And Amy is definitely one of those people. So I'm excited to have you on. Amy, why don't you do a little bit of introduction yourself and just let everybody know beyond your resume, who Amy is, some of the things that you love, maybe a little bit about your family, who you are outside of our, if you were to sit down for a job interview, Amy. Okay. Well, job interview, Amy, is a little different, but based on what I'm hearing, a little of the personal background is kind of like a good baseline. So I grew up in Lubbock. I grew up um, on Flint Avenue, which is why I named my company Flint Avenue. It's also a a Flint is a catalyst or spark for action. And so that was the dual meaning in that name. But I grew up on Flint Avenue, right in Tech Terrace, went to Lubbock High School, graduated in the mid 90s. And so everything that is coming back around right now, that's so super hyper 90s, mob and all these like yeah I'm like that is my life like you don't even know my I had kids really young um I had Ashton my when I was 17 and then I had Garrett my second when I was 18 so both kids in high school pretty much Garrett was born after I graduated in May he was born in October kind of a different path than I would have chosen. I was definitely on the college path and then had my kiddos young and it sent me flying into adulthood. And so the fast track to adulthood, (laughs) I meet 17 year olds now and I'm like, Oh my gosh, my mom, like God bless my mom because I, I can't even imagine a 17 year old holding a kid right now, but I had two. And so I still graduated high school in the top 10% of my class. I was a book nerd and I was in all the leap honors programs at Lubbock High. And oh, wow. So I was um, always a really smart kid, you know, and then with the exception of, you know, wild times, I guess. <laughs> hey, um, it was in his plan, right? It was, no, totally. I, <laughs> I don't say it like promote teenage pregnancy, but it worked out really well for me by the time I was 40 my kids were grown and graduated and 
living on their own. And so I've, been, I won't be an empty nester for Max is 11. So I'm 47 right now. Yeah. <laughs> so. And that's a lot of my friends. That's the same thing. Like, if, you know, we were empty. I was an empty nester really young. So it's been kind of fun. I've got an opportunity to travel and start Flint Avenue and do a lot of other things that, that might've been harder had I had a bunch of kids at home, as yeah. you know. Right. So then early 2000s, I had to get out of this town. You know, I was on my way to the big city, whatever it took. And I moved to Houston with my ex-husband and he was a pilot and there wasn't a lot of flying opportunities here in Lubbock. And so he took his career there and I followed. And then I started writing. And so I was writing all kinds of like training curriculum and stuff for different companies And I got picked up by this company called the Integrity Group. And they were like, man, you're really good at training development. Would you try your hand at marketing writing? And I was like, yeah, for sure. Let's try it. And so they started seating me in all of these meetings for the clients they served, which were Fortune 50 companies. I mean, the biggest companies in the whole world. And I'm sitting at the table, this like teenage mom from Lubbock, Texas. Oh my gosh, that's exciting. I had no business in those places. I I always say it's Forrest Gump experience because it was totally like <laughs> undeserved, unearned. But there I was. And so I'm a I'm a learner. So I just soaked it all up and I learned about, you know, branding from Louis Vuitton. Like Halliburton, when they want to talk about rebranding, they fly in Louis Vuitton's marketing team. Oh and, my gosh, how that is amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's some divine sovereignty right there. Yeah. And I'm sitting at the table like, they know I'm a fraud. (laughs) I do that now. I I I feel that way now with years of experience. I'm like, they're going to find out I'm a fraud. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And so, yeah, I I lived in Houston for 11 years and worked for that company for most of them. And then things went south with the marriage. I moved back to Lubbock and worked remote, flying back and forth from Houston to Lubbock, and that didn't last long. And so I started freelancing, then I launched Flint Avenue, and yeah, that's kind of my... And then here we are today, and we met because of Flint Avenue, which I love, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that is, but we, you started talking about being raised here in Lubbock, Texas. Um, One of the questions that I like to ask all my guests just to get to know you and a little bit of what formed you into who you are. One of those things I think is really fascinating is what is your earliest childhood memory and describe it for us, kind of take us there. How old were you? So I'm not entirely sure, maybe three, two or three. I was young enough to where my dad could hold me. And so I was still being carried around you know, a bit. And we were at church. I grew up um, going to Covenant Presbyterian Church, which is a teeny tiny church off of Salem and 47th, 48th Street, somewhere in that area. It's like a little hidden gym. They even have a, like a labyrinth prayer garden that you can walk through now. So you can go check it out. It's like beautiful. Oh, I'm going to have to see that. Yeah. It's a worthy of a of a drive. And the church is just a really neat community too. I, you know, went there my entire life. And so, and my mom, you know, still goes there. So, but anyhow, I remember just being a kid and my dad was holding me and one of his friends whose name is Bill Cowan. He was a good family friend. He came up to my dad and was talking to my dad. And then he turned to me and said something to me, just hi, how are you? Or you're looking cute today or whatever, you know? And I remember being so shy and I just turned my head and I didn't want to, (laughs) you know, just being cute. I was Uh being flirty cute, you know? (laughs) And I remember it so clear because he was, he teased me about being shy that day. Like you're being shy today. And it always stuck in my head. Like, that's so weird that, cause I was a very like outgoing kid, whatever was happening, I was in the heart of it, you know? Uh And so maybe that's the only time I've ever been shy. And that's why, no. Was it maybe uh, accepting a compliment? Yeah, maybe. Because I, I mean, I know I'm outgoing, but if somebody compliments me, even still to this day, I'm like, thank you. I really have to consciously go just say thank you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
Don't so be maybe like it was a, about it. more yeah. of that than you actually being shy. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I'm not great at that, of receiving compliments or attention. You give them. You give them well. Yeah, well, I, I love people. I love to see people doing cool stuff. Yeah, you, you know, do. And, and you're um, a spark for that. I think you really encourage that in people, especially in what you do. I really, I didn't know that about the name of your business. I mean, it makes sense if I were to sit here and think about it, but I love the dual meaning in that with it being the street that you grew up on and the spark that initiates so much. Mm -hmm. Share. So let's talk a little bit about one of the hardest times in your life that you shared with me. Not that you yada, yada, yada over it while ago when you were explaining things, but early in your thirties, you were diagnosed with leukemia. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? And really what I want the listeners to hear from you is, I mean, one, just the fact that you had to face that, but what are some of the things that you learned from that, that you were able to carry through that experience that really helps you to propel forward today? What are some things that helped you get through that time in your life? And maybe even what we're hope I want to talk about today is that transition of parenting from kids to adult and maybe how that affected your parenting and just all of it. I, w I would love to just talk through that a little bit with you. If you don't mind sharing, share yeah. what you are comfortable sharing. Yeah. So, well, it's always curious. People are always curious. How do you find out that you have leukemia? Like what were the side effects? Did something go wrong? And for me, it's different for every person that my brand of leukemia is chronic myeloid leukemia, CML. And for mine, it's an environmental cancer. So there's really no clear cut path as to why you have it or why you get it or what exposure you had. And there's tons of research being done on it all the time because it's super rare. Like I said, it's just not like a clear path, like smoke cigarettes, get lung cancer or whatever, or right. your parents had breast cancer. So you have it in your lineage or whatever. There's not really anything to indicate why I would have that. And so we didn't know to be on the lookout for it. I've never been screened for it, but I was working in Dallas, living in Houston, working in Dallas. And one night I just had this like insane pain in my abdomen, like crazy pain. And I had no idea what it was. So I drove myself to the emergency room, which happened to be at Baylor, which is a learning hospital. So it's full of, you know, all these people trying to figure stuff out. And your team of doctors is 12 kids walking in the room. I say kid, they're like in their twenties, you know, and you're like, whoa. Oh yeah. Whoa. The older I get, everybody looks like they're 12. Right. You're like, how are you getting married? Stop that. <laughs> but yeah, so they... I went to Baylor, which happened to be a total God thing because the ER doctor that was on call that night, this is like two o'clock in the morning, was um, specializing in CML. I was born at Baylor. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the care there is just, well, you wouldn't know, but your parents probably told you. <laughs> um, it's amazing. That hospital is crazy over the top. And yeah, so this kid was studying CML and he recognized some of the um, indicators, really high white blood cell count. Like somebody with raging appendicitis may have like 10,000, that might be their white blood cell count. And mine was something like 120,000. Oh, wow. It's like really obnoxiously high. So they were like, that's leukemia. And then they started testing more and found that there's a, a very specific chromosome that's attached to my DNA that makes it Philadelphia prom, uh, positive CML. And so anyway, I was alone in Dallas. I was alone at the hospital. I was alone. You know, the doctor comes in and he's got to tell me I have cancer. My family's in Houston that, you know, like my husband, my kids, the rest of my family's in Lubbock. And I'm kind of in the middle between the two, like, they're about to give me this diagnosis. It was so surreal because the guy who told me, like I said, they were students and he was sitting on the end of my bed and he had never told a patient they had cancer before. I know there's no way he had ever done that. And so he's like, and I don't know why, but I don't even know that I knew leukemia was a cancer at that time. Like I knew mm -hmm. leukemia was a disease, 
right. that kids got sometimes, but like an adult. And I never really like put it together. It was blood cancer until that moment, which that's just my ignorance. I didn't have any clue. I only know just from having known somebody that had leukemia whenever I was younger, or I probably wouldn't have realized it either. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it kind of was like, whoa, that's so weird. And he was so nervous. And I was like, it's fine. Like, we're good. We're going to be okay. And I'm consoling this (laughs) doctor kid. (laughs) But anyway, so I called my family and they got it all, you know, we got it all worked out, got me to Houston where I lived and got me hooked up with MD Anderson. And I started a regimen of chemotherapy. That's a daily pill that you take um, every single day. And most of the time you take it every day for the rest of your life. My kids and I, the way we manage just like that initial first six months after you realize you like have cancer is so heavy and you're just, your mortality is in your face. You're Mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, like I could die Mm -hmm. one day. Like that can happen. And I was early thirties. So, you know, you don't think like that yet. Right. Right. Totally out of nowhere. But I just started pressing into my kids and we were like, how are we going to get through this? Probably with humor. So we make jokes all the time. (laughs) Like if I wanted them to do something, I'm like, man, I just, I feel like this cancer's flaring up and I just can't do the dishes right now. (laughs) And they were like, mom, you know, I really would love a glass of water, but it's all the way in there and something's holding me back. I feel like it, maybe it's cancer. And it it was just like, stop it, mom. I mean, that's kind of you also and considerate because I think whenever, when you have a friend or loved one that has a disease such as cancer, you don't know what to say. Like we as adults aren't taught what to say. And so then we don't do a good job of really teaching our kids how to talk about it. And so then it, you don't talk about it. And I think that creates more discomfort than actually just acknowledging it and talking about it. And for you, you just, that lets people off the hook, you know, and kind of eliminates that emotional pressure and awkwardness so that you're able to just talk about reality and let's just talk about it. It's not going to go away. Here it is. This is part of our life. And, um, that would be comforting to me. It just made me comfortable with it. You talking about it in that way and something I should be more mindful of. Yeah, no, I think it's funny. I tell people any once you have cancer then people who get cancer they like reach out to you when they get cancer <laughs> you know what i mean like you kind of there's this secret society and we all text with each other well i had a i mean it doesn't compare to leukemia but when you were talking about people say what are the signs and it's like you go one day you're perfectly healthy as far as you know yeah to the next day now you have this cancer diagnosis and i it's been a little over a year ago i guess that i thought i had gotten bitten by a spider on my face like i woke up and had a spot on my face and it just kept getting more and more painful and so i assumed it was a spider bite and then my eyes started getting red and so i was scared and a little bit of vanity kicked in if it would have been my arm or something i wouldn't have done anything about it but i need my face to like get out in the community and to go years back, I had been in a boot camp that I did for several years. And one of the people that was in my boot camp is a um, skin doctor. I am now going to go blank on dermatologist. Yes, a dermatologist. And so I sent her a picture of my face and just said, Hey, is this anything to be worried about? She said, yes, get in here immediately. That is shingles. You need to get in here immediately. You can go blind. And so I end up making an appointment going in immediately to see her. It also was crazy because it was her last day to be in the office because she was about to give birth any second. And so she was trying to see all her patients that day. So just the timing of all of that. But then while she left the room, she had her assistant. He was like an intern that was in the room. And he said, is there anything else you want us to check while you're here? And I just said, yeah, if you don't mind, you know, look at my moles. I haven't had them checked in years and I'm just a freckly moly person. And so he starts doing his normal look and everything. And then he was like, oh yeah, we have a problem. 
and then brings her in and she's like, we need to remove this immediately. And it was a tiny mole on my back, like the size smaller than an eraser. And it ended up being, um, cancer. And so they, like, we had to have it removed. And I just remember going from, I'm still healthy. Like in my brain, I'm still healthy. There's nothing wrong with me, but then you have this cancer label and it's like, okay, your mortality, just like you said, kicks in. And I'm going, how did this happen to me? And just being, I have to be so mindful. And now I don't know about you, but like every little itch or mark I see now, I'm like, Oh, is that, you know, is it coming back? But it's such a weird experience to just, like you said, have your mortality stuck in your face because I mean, God forbid, I wouldn't have had a little bit of vanity and gone in to have my face checked. I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have known. And they wouldn't have caught it when they did. So, you know, I guess our body's like, Hey, I'm going to give you a, here's your notice. (laughs) Something's not right. So thank God for the pain that you had or what, you know, and it was totally unrelated. Like, was unrelated to that so it's yeah I always tell people when they first get diagnosed I I tell them just stay off the horn for a minute you know I I mean sometimes people want to just blast everything and talk about it to everybody right away and I tell them just sit with it for a minute you and your spouse or your loved one or whatever and just kind of hang out there until you can digest a bit of it and then you know, go be the poster child for whatever you want to be the poster child for, or, you know, talk about it, share your story. But if you take just a minute, you know, because the the thing you want to do is like, get it and grab your phone and text every single person, you know, but what happens when you do that is that now you're managing all of their freak out. Oh yeah. Yeah. If you just take a minute, just take a beat, wait a minute think about it, pray through it, just kind of get your level ground. Then when you talk to other people, you're not having to like manage their emotion with yours because everybody freaks out. That's great advice. I was, I was actually freaked out and didn't want to even call my husband because I didn't, I didn't want to give him that news. Yeah. And so it took me a little while to even process it enough to tell him because I didn't want him to worry, but it's like, I also need to tell him what's going on. Yeah. Pales in a comparison to your experience, but I can somewhat relate to it. Somewhat. Yeah. No, I think that is. That's exactly what it, it's all the same emotions, right? I mean, yeah. riding that little roller coaster, whether it's short or long. And it's always, once you have something like that, it's always in the back of your head. Even when you release it, even when you remission, all those words, it's still sitting back there like, is this the time? Is it coming back? Every checkup, follow-up, you know what I mean? Right. You're always wondering. So has it helped you be more present? You know, I hear all the time and, and it was definitely a big learning for me last year. Takeaway for me was to be present. And so like my vision for this year really revolves around being present and enjoying the process instead of like needing to check off things on a list. Do you feel like that was maybe something you were able to really armor yourself with before walking into 2020 because of that experience? And maybe your children and family benefited from that too? Probably. I think it's a little bit of my personality to be an observer and to just kind of soak it all in. I love to be in spaces. If you read a lot or if you write, when you're in a scene or, you know, in a moment, you're you're trying to soak up the details anyway. That's just how my mind works. And so I have seen a lot of people though, that are taskmasters, like super goal oriented people saying what you're saying right now, that last year helped them reset that, you know, just reset their mind a little bit to sort of settle in and notice the goodness around you. And I think that's something I'm good at. I think I've, God gave me that. I'm, I'm worse about just like being in the moment and then people are like, Hey, it's time to move on. (laughs) You're like, but I'm going to hang out here for a while. But I'm like, this is good. This is, you're just so calming. I mean, are you like that all the time? Are you like that with, with your children? Like what does Amy mad look like? Oh, I am still chill. (laughs) No, I think I'm kind of like, yeah, it's like, I'm, I'm one of those moms. that's like, Hey, 
could you not do that? Hey, when you do that, this is what happens. Hey, let me over explain that five more times in a super cool way. Hey, okay, we've talked about this 10 times and then I lose my mind. <laughs> so I totally snap. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's me. I'm like, I'm trying to be super cool here, but you still have not done anything. Yes. I, yes. I feel like that's me. Not initially, not with my oldest whenever he was little, because I was still young and just would just yell. Um, And I, that's just been just learning and educating myself and being aware that my children are individuals and deserve some mutual respect, you know, I, I just grew up where it was do as I say, and there wasn't any discussion about it. And I've tried to, well, it's eliminated a lot of yelling by, by talking to them more about it. And I've found that if it's their idea or if they have some buy-in into whatever it is that I'm wanting them to do, they're more apt to do that than rather than just being told to do something. I, I know I don't like being told to do anything, but just before we get off the subject of leukemia, because clearly the the worst time for you within that wasn't being told. It doesn't sound like because you were comforting yeah, everybody else. What was the hardest moment and and why was it the most difficult through this experience? And I'm assuming that, well, are you in remission or how? I was until December. So I was in remission officially 2016. I went into actual undetectable. They couldn't, you know what I mean? They couldn't detect it in my bloodstream, but I continue to go to the oncologist. And then I transferred to a doctor at MD Anderson in Houston. And their, their testing is a lot more sensitive than what we can do here. And so, yeah, they, last October, I guess there was a little blip. And then I was in Houston in December and it was confirmed that the CML is creeping its way back up, but we're still, I'm still in treatment-free remission, which means I have not started a new chemotherapy drug yet. Um, I'm believing God's just letting it be a blip and my body's going to fight it. Well, I will specifically pray that that is accurate. Thanks. Yeah. What that's um, news. I had no idea. And why would I? I mean, it's not like, like we just talked about, it's not like you're texting everybody going, Hey, um, wow. Yeah. I will specifically pray for that, Amy. I didn't know. And I believe that God's got you and, and maybe, yeah, it's a blip. Yeah. It's a blip. It's a blip. And and even I just, no matter what happens with that, I just, I have this obnoxious optimism. I just always know that God's good. He's got things for me to do. He's got a plan purpose for me. So I just press into that. Where does your faith come from? Where does that level of faith come from? Because it's a recurring theme with my friends that I talk to that have faced some of the the hardest adversity that, you know, would cripple some people or they wouldn't move on with their lives and they would sit in it forever has been their faith, very strong faith. And I share, you know, I was told always that I see the silver lining or to, to make it sound like something that's not positive. It was get your head out of the clouds. You know, I'd be told things like that, but that's just how I have always seen life, even in the darkest times, just that, that optimism like you have, but can, where did your faith start? Do you have a moment where you, in your life, where you experienced that belief firsthand, or was it just instilled in you so strongly as a child? Or I think it's probably a culmination of that, and um, you know, being raised in a church in a you know prayerful family, but also just so my when my parents divorced when I was around 12, 13 years old. And my dad went into sort of like the new age crystals and meditation stuff back in the early, like early nineties, late eighties. And so it wasn't like I had this, like study the Bible, you know, read the word, consume the word, full on relational, emotional experience with the Lord from my parents. My dad definitely did a lot of like spiritual meditation and connecting with the universe and the energy that's flowing from you and me. And we called that the Holy spirit is what he would say. I know 
that is the Holy Spirit. I believe that to be the Holy Spirit that moves between us and, and through all living things. And so I think some of that, like, I don't know, spiritual, just that, that whole manifestation of energy and those types of conversations might have set a little bit of a, I guess, an understanding of the spiritual. I don't know, like uh-huh. it's less mystical to me. It feels very real to me. Uh-huh. And then my mom being Presbyterian, that's just like two ticks away from Catholicism. So it's very routine and the same. And we say the same things and we stand up and we sit down and we sing holy, holy, holy. And it's like the same thing over and over. So that kind of created just like this pattern of steady, Uh you know, and my dad had all these wild and she had the steady. And I think somewhere in between the two, you know, I just kind of found my ground with Jesus. And so, yeah, I've just always pressed into that. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if there was a specific moment for it or not, but there's definitely been moments where I was against God, for God, against God. You know, I mean, I've gone through all of that. It's not like I was, you know, baby Buddha or something yeah. like my whole life, but. Yeah, I've tried to run away from him a few times and I just really suck on my own. And so <laughs> I'm glad he doesn't give up on me because, yeah, I don't, I, I try to think about that sometimes too. And I grew up in a Methodist church because I lived with my, my dad's parents during the most formative years, like as far as back as I can remember until I was about six years old. And we were, it seemed like we were always in church, but she didn't like make us sit down and read the Bible. It was just very prayerful. And I could feel her faith just Mm -hmm. being around her. She's just such a faithful woman. And there was so much strength in my grandma. And so I admired the strength in her and connected that to her faith. And, but then the, I have this memory. I was somewhere in grade school and went to, I was living with my parents and went to a church within our community, had on some new penny loafers because they would, I went up, I remember going up to the pastor and being like, I can tap dance. (laughs) I mean, if anybody knows me, I can't dance at all. And they would just clank on the floor. And so I pretended I could tap dance, but during, (laughs) during that sermon, they called everybody down and it wasn't a Methodist church. It was a different kind of church. And they called everybody. If you felt so called to come down and pray in the front. And I was a young child and just felt like it was almost like the stage was surrounded in gold. I know that sounds weird, but I felt like I, I was so drawn to go to the stage and kneel with all these people and pray. And I, so that was like my first vivid, my relationship, like I felt it. And not being taken to church or let's pray together, or, you know, it was just an individual calling, but the foundation starts somewhere. So I'm, I don't know. It's just something that gets me curious where that starts for people. And then where you found your relationship. When I hear that story from you, I guess it, I mean, it does remind me of, um, of a moment I was pregnant with Ashton 17, you know, like what in the world have I done with my life? And I was staying at their dad. His name is Dustin. He is, we were at his mom's house. That's where we were going to live until the baby was born so that she could help us. Praise God for, thank you. Thank, thank you. you to Dustin's mom. <laughs> she was awesome. And so um, she was like massive Bible thumper kind of lady. And she had this um, show on called the power team which was like all these guys who did karate and said Bible verses. I don't know. Oh like, no, I know this. Yes. Yeah, like, I, yes. I know exactly. Things. Yeah. So they would do karate and they were like, I can do all things through Christ. You strengthens me. <laughs> and then they would break boards and stuff. And for whatever reason that kind of hit me. And I was like, I can do this. I can have this baby. I can do these things. I can do all things through Christ. You strengthens me. And then they like had a, an altar call sort of a situation. And they're like, if you're out there watching this right now behind the screen, you know, they did the whole, and I was like, this is so stupid, but totally <laughs> I'm one of those people. You're all sitting there pregnant. Hi-ya. <laughs> totally. So I'm I like, totally remember the power tra- team. I wouldn't have remembered yeah. that if you hadn't have brought it up. That's funny. 
Yeah, so that's probably like the full on like accepting of of yeah. Christ, you know, in that way. That's so cool. So being a young parent, which that I didn't know until I started asking you questions um, that you were a young mother, but you talked about one of the things that you love to talk about, which I'm very intrigued by and could use some daily help with this one. But as far as parenting from the transition time from kids to adults, yeah. do you mean in you being a parent from a kid to an adult or you meant in the you being the parent and parenting your children from children to adulthood I think I think being I became an instant adult so it was a little different but I think guiding your kids from teenager into adulthood into being their own individual selves and who they're supposed to be in the world man Adult kids, like having them is so much harder than toddlers or teenagers because you know, like when you have a teenager and they're mad and they scream at you and they storm off to their room and you know, they're in their room. Right. You know what I mean? They could be on their phone doing craziness or whatever, but if they're an adult and they live on their own and they're in their own apartment with their own friends, you don't even know what they had for dinner last night. You know? Yes. Unless I'm, li- I'm living this right now. So yeah. I'm all ears. Yeah. That's, I think that's, that's such a hard season at first, especially that first year. It's hard for them because they're trying to, you know, be grown up and do their own thing, but also just teetering on that line of like, Hey, I'm still your parent. I'm still here, but also respecting them, you know, enough to not, go clean their house when they're not home or whatever, you know, right. right. Giving them the space to kind of do their thing. So help me with that. Like, let's talk a real life scenario and give me some of your advice because, you know, I've got 20 Kaiser's 21 and he moved, this is now his third year to be out of our home and Eris is 16. And then I have my 11 year old. And I feel like that was a perfect example of what you're talking about. I have comfort. If Eris gets frustrated with me and goes to her room, I know she's safe. I know where she is. I know that I can go pop in and like talk it out if I need to, Um, which one thing that you say is live it out. So I, I want to dig into that. But Kaiser, the first year was hard, but he talked to us more. You know, there was still that yeah. that communication. And then really over the last couple of years, it'll be, unless there's, unless there's a holiday or a birthday or a reason, then I won't hear from him proactively. Like he doesn't reach out to me probably the, the entire month. And it's really, really hard. I've had to selfishly, I know it's about me. I know it's more of my need to, to connect to him. And then I think about when I found my husband and have my family, they're the center of my universe, not, not my parents. I'm not, you know, and so that's hard to deal with. And then coming to that realization that they each have their own purpose in life. Like they are an individual with a God-given purpose. And that's may have nothing to do with any kind of vision that I had for their life, but it's so I, it's just really, I think, more difficult for me right now and probably hard for Kaiser too. Honestly, I think that he thinks that unless he's got good news to share with us, like he, a report card or I won this or, you know, what, how he lived his life whenever he was in the home, I think that he's like, well, I don't really have anything to talk to him about. Like, you can just tell me you're okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't care. So it's, it's, this year has been, or especially 2020, but it's been really difficult. So I could use some advice as a parent on how to, just be there for him, I guess. Yeah. I think one thing I learned pretty quick in those first couple of years was that I had to trust my kids, just trust that I raised them. You know, you're not going to probably teach them how to be a better person once they're already kind of a big, you know what I mean? On their own. Like you can definitely correct things like, you know, don't be a bully when they're six and seven but you don't, um, you know, once they're an adult, the correction time is over, really. They'll ask you for advice, but most of the time, like, they're not doing the things that you think they're up to, you know, when they're quiet and they're, they're probably just being good kids, or they're probably just trying to figure out the next thing, 
And so I think just learning to trust that they are going to live out some moments. And I do say that. I say it to my kids all the time. Like, I'm just letting you live that out. And whenever you're ready to, to talk it through or see, you know, I call them postmortems, like after the situation's dead, let's talk it through. Um, That's because they're going to, they're going to do stuff. They're going to experience the world. And I want them to like, I, you know, go kiss the boy in the rain and go, you know, whatever. Yeah. Go have fun and, and have some drinks with your buddies and sleep on his couch. Like that's, it's not the end of the world. That's the kind of stuff that, you know, youth is made of. You won't ever, you won't always want to do that stuff. And so. I think that's the biggest thing, you know, you, you said it, which is trusting. Yeah. And you have to, to have any relationship or connection with anybody, you've got to be willing to trust. Yeah. And it's got to be a safe place for them to, to share some of those failures with you. You know, like I want my kids, if they need something from me and you know, they need a ride or they need whatever, I want them to feel that they always have access to me. And I tell them that all the time. You always have access to me. I had a client call last week and I was pitching to a brand new client and my daughter called twice in a row back to back. Well, that indicates to me she needs me right then. And so I told, I was like, I'm so sorry, but my kids have full access to me. I want them to always Mm -hmm. know that if, if they need something, I'm here. And it turned out it wasn't super important, but, but she knows that. And I think too, like kids are not great about reaching out to us and pursuing us like they were when they were four and they like wanted to spend time with you and brush your hair or whatever, Yes. but they want us to pursue them. Don't want us to pursue them and nag them and be hateful or hurtful to them, but they want us to pursue them and just tell them that we're trusting them and that we love them and that we're excited for their future and remind them that they're good and that they've got good stuff ahead you know? Yeah. Wow. That's really powerful. I'm going to listen to this over and over again, back in my brain. And I do, you know, I do trust my children, but it's so fear creeps in, especially this last year. And it's, you know, what, what are they experiencing? And, you know, all the memes that you see whenever it's, when I don't respond to my mom, where she, what she thinks is really happening and their car's like in a ditch or, you know, that's all those things cross through my head because I wasn't a good kid. I wasn't whenever I moved out and I just, I made a lot of really stupid decisions. And so I, I imagine that that's what my son is doing. And I know better. I know better. He's a much better kid than I was. And so I know better, but it's just difficult, but that's great advice to just he needs to know that I'm here and, and I'll continue to pursue him. I mean, I will, I, I tell him I love him until it's probably where he's like, okay. But my, when I say, I love you, I'm trying to say like, you're the, you mean everything to me yeah. whether you live here or not, you know? Um, but I love to live it out. I'm going to, I had, I have it written down right here in my dreams book, live it out because yeah. of you. Um, and really so Huh? There's so much to that, you know, there's so much to it. We always just want to fix everything and we want to jump in and rescue them from situations. And I think if they've, if they see the consequences of things, good and bad, and they, you know, it's always safe because you're there. They've always got you as a safety net kind of in the background, you know, mm-hmm. but if they know that, that it's safe to fail, it's safe to succeed, it's safe, you know, then they're they're going to go try some things. We want our kids to try stuff. You know, I do. I want them to experience the world. Like Ashton, um, which is the middle daughter. My oldest is Katrina. She's my um, husband's daughter. And Ashton is the next one. And I tell Ashton all the time, she's like, man, I just want to go to Ireland. And I'm like, go. Go. Why are you not going? You're an adult. You're an adult. You have no kids at home you and your husband stock up some cash and go. It's not that much. You yeah. can do it because I want them like, go. I do, it all too. I do want them to experience things, especially now. And, you know, one of the, I think it was a good conversation that we had with Kaiser. He lives such a high producing life as, you know, through high school and very demanding and took all the hard classes and multiple sports and 
um, did all of those things that he got into college and thought he was going to, he needed to live his life and it was a race and I've got to take all these classes and work and sports and all of that. And we just sat him down and said, it's not a race. And I would much rather you try a lot of different things and figure out what you even like Yeah. before you, and maybe it's not college. I don't know, but God, like enjoy your life a little bit and figure it out. I mean, I don't want him to just stay still and not pursue his goals, but I do want him the opportunity to figure it out. So you had said that when I asked you about your, to talk about one of your proudest moments, you had said that you have many, but that um, you're most proud whenever your children make some of the hard, good decisions. Can you give us an example of one of those that, that makes you proud of your children? So Ashton and Garrett are the two that I had when I was young and their, their dad passed away a couple of years ago and he's like my age. It was a sudden unexpected thing, terribly tragic for both of them. They were heartbroken as you can imagine being so young and, mm-hmm. and losing their parent and just like watching them navigate grief with, you know, positive attitudes and, and understanding. And like they're in situations where um, my son's a musician and he works in the music industry a bit. He does um, like sound systems and churches and stuff like that. And he also isn't everyone he works for is a musician as well. And so the scenes that you can be in when you're a musician, like his father was, are not always the scenes you want your kids in. You know, sometimes those places are, are just not super healthy. And so it's really cool to me to watch him navigate that though, because he understands the unhealthy in it. Like he sees it and he's like, oh, I just steer clear. If I'm going to hang out in those spaces, I just don't drink. I'm not going to drink with those guys because they're not drinking to just have a glass of wine or have a beer or whatever. They're drinking to get smashed drunk and make fools of themselves. He's like, I'm not down for that. And that's a, you know, that's a 25 year old kid just making the choice to, to not participate in destructive behavior. Uh And with, and he has the platform of history to like make all the worst choices. Right. And he doesn't. And our, you know, our oldest Katrina, she's, she just continually makes the choice to, take care of her family. Like she doesn't want to um, blow things off and go, you know, crazy when things are wrong. And she just, you know, she stays home and she takes care of our grandbaby and she's such a good mom and she will do anything to maintain that lifestyle. Like she's like got herself a cricket machine. She's making stuff for people and just anything she can do to try to stay home and be with her baby and, those kind of things, that's a hard decision, especially, yes. Yes, she's it is. A, you know, she's the college graduate teacher. She had an awesome job. She was climbing the ranks. They had promoted her two or three times in the last couple of years. And she just decided to say, no, I want to do this instead. And so yeah, she I did. think that's wonderful that she had the, the self-awareness to know, to truly know what is most important to her. Yeah. And to make those kind of difficult decisions that that some people wouldn't understand why she would make, but that is the right decision for her and her family. And that takes a lot of courage to do things like that. Yeah. And I don't even get that decision like that. The idea of not being at a job or, you know what I mean? Like I cannot, that that's polar opposite of how I would have had to do things. You know what I mean? Well, Oh yeah, me too. And I was working like three jobs and trying to, me too. You know, my, my husband's the one that made that decision. Whenever I was pregnant with Kaiser, we got an offer for a job that I had prayed for. Like they asked me, what is your dream job? I told them they sent me the offer letter and I'm pregnant and we're staring at this offer letter. And so my husband was like, I will give up my career and we'll follow yours. And thank God we, it was the right decision, but he, he made that very difficult decision and it's not your 
your normal everyday family unit, but I would like to normalize that for people to make those decisions that are right for their family, whether, and take off the labels of who has to work, but, and who needs to stay home and who belongs where, like we, we belong where, wherever is best for us and our family is where I think we belong. And so I would wilt like a flower. I tried it for a couple of years working from home and about lost my marbles and took my family down with me (laughs) because I was not happy. I'm just meant, I just can't do it. Just like you, like I've got to be creating, doing, that's just in my DNA, I guess, of who I'm, who I'm supposed to be. But before we started recording, you said, I asked you how things are going and you said that people are still kind of trying to figure their way out of last year and spread their wings and all of those things. And Let's talk about that for a second and some advice that you would have to people listening if they are still experiencing some of that being unsettled and maybe they haven't really found their ground to move forward and to make the most of the time that they have. What, what advice would you give people listening? Yeah. And maybe describe a little bit about what, what we were talking about, what you're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I should, we should set the scene. So I think, so in marketing, you're always watching public behaviors, right? You're watching what's happening in the media, how people are responding, and then how do you position things in that path, right? So if everybody's heading in this direction, you want to be, you know, visible in that direction. And so this last year, like flipped everything on its head and everybody was kind of, you know, in a full panic from a marketing perspective, we were in a full panic of like, okay, are you a business and do you even exist right now? Because everybody's on fire and everything was kind of melting down. And then people started to gain some traction. It's like, okay, this is how we're doing business now. We're online or we're, you know, we're open, we're doing curbside. And so people started getting, they learned all these new behaviors. But I think that we got so good at all the new stuff by the end of the year. Like, I mean, everybody's shopping online, everybody's doing all the things. We started kind of getting our thing like in action, like we were just in a routine. And then January hits and we're expecting that was, that was the end of the tunnel. That was the light, right? Like Like the veil was to be lifted. (laughs) We were supposed to like, you know, ring in the new year. And we should have known because of the year 2000, like Y2K, I remember waking up that morning and we were like, oh, so nothing's different. Got it. Noted. (laughs) Like, I I have even made that comparison that other than 20 to the year 2000, because I was in the technology industry, you know, the whole world was going to crash because of Y2K. I haven't lived through a more anticipated new year than 2021, because there's really just this massive need for renewal and massive need for, for that metaphorical and literal cloud to be removed, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. And I think when it wasn't removed and when January didn't like look like, you know, the full color version of Wizard of Oz where everything was beautiful and yes. And it was still the same old, same old. Everybody was like, wait a second. And so, and then we had, you know, in Lubbock, we had this big snowstorm and everything kind of got frozen, shut down for the last few days. And put us back into that feeling we were having in March where we weren't supposed to go anywhere again. And I don't know, I think everybody just feels kind of like they're ice skating and they just haven't quite gotten traction yet. And my advice for that, this is what I'm doing. I don't know if it works for everybody, but I just, I had to put blinders on, you know, just let me focus on what I'm trying to do. I can't think about all the rest of this. I have to turn off the media I know I'm supposed to be informed about politics and things happening in the world, but I, I just can't right now. I just have to turn it off because there's people that need our help right here. And there's businesses that need my help getting their word out. And I cannot just let everything that is pulling me in a negative direction continue. And so I've just put on blinders and I've set some micro goals for myself and I'm just trying to like plug through towards the things I know I'm supposed to do. Right. Yeah. That's a great point. Well, 
while some people get very focused on things that they can't control, they're not taking care of all the people that need us right now that we could actually help if we would refocus. I've done the same thing. I don't, I, I can't even tell you the last time I turned on my television other than to, you know, maybe binge some Bridgerton or something, <laughs> but I, I, uh, or Cobra Kai, but I don't watch the news. I can't do anything about that directly or immediately. I mean, I, I can do my part. I'm not saying that I don't play a part in, in impacting the world, but I know where my ability to help begins and ends. And so I've done the same thing. You know, I, I made my vision board. I have my goals that include all the different parts of my life and am trying to make sure that I'm focusing on people that I can help. There's a lot of, well, let me back up. I need that, that community and connection. My soul needs it. And so instead of expecting somebody else to create that space for me, I created that type of space that I needed. So I have my Shebrews group that I will go and have coffee with women on Wednesdays and creating different opportunities to connect. And people need, I think, really need to stop and recognize, you know, when you were talking about how we all got into our routine and everything became so on online and then how people were going to go out and get out at least here in Lubbock and then we're snowed in, it's easy to get just right back into that routine of not reaching out and connecting. And I think people need to stop and realize if that's what they need to make sure it's happening just for mental health and your physical health and everything. We need that connection. Um, but yeah, we share in that. So I would, I would say your approach does work because that's what's been, what's been helping me. So we've talked a lot about personal stuff, but just to kind of wrap it up, I do want to talk about a little bit of your Amy and, and Flint Avenue and what your, what are some of your goals? Will, will you share them with us a little bit and, and maybe a peek behind the curtain of, of what your plans are for 2021? Yeah. So we, um, gosh, there's like so many different things happening. So at the beginning, well, at the end of last year, we had um, started conversations about bringing in an app development team that could do the back end like the actual programming for mobile apps and custom software and things like that. And we've been building some pretty robust websites um, and things like that and really understanding like analytics and what gets traffic to websites and why certain things work and certain things don't work. And it's so it's kind of a natural progression, I think, for a lot of um, digital marketers to start moving into app development. And we've done front end design, which is like the screens and the wireframes, mm -hmm. like what you see when you launch an app, what that looks like. Right. We've designed those for years. But then um, with conversations with a good friend of mine, Mike Jones, who uh, previously was the CEO of another software development company. And then most recently he was just working as a programmer and um, at another company here in town he and I started talking about it and we were like, you know, we're really good at this. We really understand what we're doing. We really get like user experience and how to market an app. And it's the whole piece. It's the whole thing together. And so we launched that technology side this month. And so Mike joined our team and he's leading a team of software developers. And that was a huge leap for me. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> it's like, um, it's a big shift from like social media posting to really like we took this last year and I put so many of our people through training. I want you to learn Google analytics from the ground up, like every single detail. I want you to understand Facebook blueprint and know why an ad works or an ad doesn't work. And we learned all year, just dove in and we talk about what we learned and share it and then start building these packages. And so that's one of my goals for this year is to launch. Well, the, the problem was we're getting bigger. And when you get bigger, you get more expensive just because things cost more. The small businesses that I have such a heart for. Oh, you're um, launching your full technology package. We had to come up with something that was less expensive for small businesses, but still gave them access to enterprise level tools, you know? Right. So some, I mean, you've got to have that if you're going to help them break through the noise. Yeah. 
So because we're on this place where we have enterprise size clients, like big global clients, we have tools that we can use with them that we can give access to small businesses to at a lower price. Yeah, we're still kind of like pulling it all together. What's the offering? What's the most valuable? How can we not go under yeah. the software? Right. But um, you've got to be able to adjust and adapt yeah. and expand and adapt yeah. and overcome and reshape and all of those things. You've yeah. got to be able to do with what's occurring. Because the pattern now is that a small business will say, we need some help with social media. And they'll reach out to a company like ours or some of our competitors. And the pricing isn't always in line with what they can afford. So what they end up doing is hiring, you know, college student or their niece or something like that. And they say, hey, can you run some social media for me? And they do. And then it's a huge waste of their time and their money because they had no strategy or they didn't they don't understand how um, some of these things work and how to get more traction and get right. more traffic. And you don't them. even know what to ask for. I mean, that yeah. if, me, you know, I, I've got a lot of marketing background, but I don't study all of those things. And so I would do the same thing and probably waste money and not knowing when to run an ad, where to run an ad, how to run an ad, if I should yeah. run an ad. And then the, the app thing to me is huge. You know, I think about small businesses. Like I think about my friends that have, they haven't, they've had to close their, their boutique gyms that they love, that they put time and effort into, but they're still an amazing trainer. They'll do online things for their clients, but if they were able to, so somebody could come to Flint Avenue and go, I, here's kind of who I think I want to be. And you're able to help them with brand identity. Yeah. And then how do you, the strategy for actually communicating who you are and really identifying who your target audience is how to best reach those people, and then what is your offering to those people? And now you'd be able to help them develop an app where they could access them right from their phone, do everything yeah. that they need to do right there. Yeah, literally anything in regards to like technology and digital marketing and marketing strategy, we have it right there. And then because our office is at the Innovation Hub at Texas Tech, and I'm one of the mentors there, we are constantly seeing people with cool ideas coming through the door, uh -huh. you know, and sometimes they're not quite right for the programming that's happening. Like there's all kinds of cool programs that happen at the Innovation Hub and that's free to public. So definitely check out the website and look at the competitions. There's money to be won, really cool um, opportunities. But because we're there, we've seen so much of the startup process from the textbook perspective and what's needed for funding and getting money for different projects and things like that. But then we also see it from, you know, from a small business perspective where you not necessarily have these big giant ideas, but you have a simple idea that needs right. some legs. And we, we know how to get you from point A to point B. And if Flint Avenue can't help you, then it, we're going to connect you with somebody. We know somebody almost always. And there's such a need, you know, when you talked about moving forward this year, there's, those are the types of people that can be helped that have businesses that need to be transformed, that need to be able to adapt and they don't even know where to start. Um, yeah. But if they were to reach out to, to you and your team, mm -hmm. you'd be able to help them directly so that they can survive this unknown that we're experiencing. And I guess it's, a cliche for a reason. I mean, we can always expect change, right? So people need to accept it and might as well get on this, this side of change and initiate it instead yeah. of waiting for it to happen and initiate some change in your business. I'm really excited that you were on here. I've learned a lot. I, I just love getting to know you, but you gave me some great advice on parenting. I will be praying very specifically for the blip many prayers for that. And I, I don't know, I just have confidence in it. If it gives you, you probably have peace. Yeah. I have peace in knowing that that's what it is. Yeah. And, you know, thank you for sharing. I, as far as I remember when your, your children's father passed away that, I mean, that hasn't been very long ago and can only imagine how difficult that was for them and how proud of them you must be of your entire family. I mean, we didn't even talk about your, your fire and y'all losing everything. I mean, we could talk for a couple hours for the things 
that you've experienced in your lifetime, but you're just somebody that I have peace when I'm around you just sitting, I can see you. And so just sitting here talking to you, just your whole demeanor is very calming. And yet you go out and just make the most of this life, which is what this podcast is about. And so I look forward to seeing what, what else you do with your business and within your family and the community and all the things that you spearhead within our community. And for those of you that want to connect more with Amy, you can go to a kingsizelife.com and you'll be able to not only find the episodes, but you'll be able to link with her if you want to reach out to her for creative and marketing ideas. If you're a woman within the community and you're wanting to get more involved, there's a lot of ways she can connect you to be very involved, not only from a strong leadership perspective as a woman in the community, but just as a human in our community and giving back, I would encourage you to connect with her in that way too. And as always, my prayer for you is that you get off the sidelines of life and live a king size life because we only get one. You've been listening to a king size life podcast with Shannon King. You can follow Shannon on Facebook and Instagram. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. We really appreciate that effort. Be sure to join us next time for another encouraging podcast with Shannon King. Thanks so much for listening.